With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast and happy Thanksgiving. It is uh, hopefully a, a safe and happy travel day or week for you, or if you're hosting uh, some loved ones on Thanksgiving, uh, be be safe in uh, in cooking and in you know doing all the things you need to do to get things ready for your friends and family. And hey, if you're not hanging around with anybody this Thanksgiving, you can hang out with us, your three friendly neighborhood pals, on the show before the show podcast as we welcome you into this week's holiday edition episode, uh, the first I guess of the holiday editions. My name is Tyler Ron in New York City, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill. Gents, how are you? Good, good. Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, I was sorry I missed out last week, but it sounded like you guys had a had a great time. I did listen into that interview uh, about the Rome rebrand, um, so that that was a lot of fun to to be a listener instead of a podcaster last week. Uh, won't make a habit of it. I swear, I, I'm back for good. Uh, but no, it it was it was a good time out west. Happy to be back with you guys. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sam was gone for two weeks. Uh, the first week, Tyler and I just said there cannot be a podcast. You we know? were too distraught. Exactly. We we're going through those different stages of grief. And right. in the first week, it was just that pure emotional devastation. It was like a really bleak and barren emotional landscape for both of us. Yeah. Um, and then in the second week, he got over it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, by week two, we were like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. We were like, this is like, what do we even need this guy for anyway? You know? <laughs> Uh, I think that's a common pathway. Yeah. Uh, like in the uh, podcasting world, people move on quickly. Yeah, and in life itself, I mean, you you have to you get knocked down, and then we couldn't mourn you forever, Sam. All right, you get one week, and that's that. The show before the show must go on. Yeah, uh, that's fair. I I you know I'm not asking for a four week moratorium. I'm just saying if you're going to mourn me, you know, throw throw your back into it a little bit. Yeah, but in retrospect. It, Sam didn't die. We were treating it like he did, but he was only on vacation. He was. And it looked like a beautiful vacation, by the way. Uh, and I was very happy uh, Sam got to to check out uh, some cool stops in Utah. You hit some national parks. Uh, you went to the Catskills as well. You went to a college football game, which was very cool. You uh, you went to a Pac-12 game at the, the home of the Utah Utes. How was that? Yeah, I'd, I'd never been to a Power 5 college football game before. Um, I don't know if I've ever been to a FBS game before. I've been to UMass. Oh, interesting. And Harvard Yale, um, but those at, at the time UMass was FCS uh, and Harvard Yale is FCS now. So I, that was one thing I've wanted to do this year was go to a, a Power Five football game, see what that's like. I didn't go to a football school. Something Your alma mater formerly sport. had football. The football stadium is still there, but no football team. The football stadium also used to be Braves Field. Right, exactly, which is very cool. Uh, so, yeah, it still exists, but no, we did not have football when I was there. So that was the thing I wanted to do. And uh, Utah Utes happened to be hosting the Arizona State 
Sun Devils when I was there. I think the final score was 55 to three. The drubbing. Uh, everybody in Salt Lake City went home happy. Uh, yeah. And then I went to Arches, Canyonlands, and Zion National Park. So cool. uh, highly recommend all three. Uh, you were there. They call it the big five, the five national parks in Utah. One of those is Capitol Reef. Have you gotten any explanation as to why? I'm assuming that's like a prehistoric. Re- I've not been to Capitol Reef. It looks amazing. Is that, did they, did you read anything about Capitol Reef? How is there a reef in Utah? I mean, I know that was all part of an inland sea millions of years ago. We have dinosaur footprints in various places in Colorado from areas that were actually like beaches at one time where the ocean, you know, turned into land in Colorado, which is so weird to think about. But what's the deal with that reef? I, I didn't go to Capitol Reef, so I can't speak to it specifically, but I will say that did come up a lot. Like you Interesting. go to visitor centers and they're just like, yeah. So the reason why there's lines here is because where the water right? is yeah. loaded in a certain way. And you're just like, that's so insane. Like the, the idea of arches to begin with. Yeah. Like how those exist is because obviously we know the structure of an arch is very structurally sound and very strong, but that's because that's all that's left of some yeah. of this. It's just been eroded over years and over years. So, like, what's standing is just the arches that happen naturally because they are so sound. Pretty amazing. Uh, But, yeah, it's like all this stuff used to be underwater at one point, which is so nuts. I think now we're kind of getting some good feelers out there for a spinoff podcast in which we just talk about all the national parks, which actually sounds awesome. I would do that podcast in a heartbeat. Who can can fund uh, that? Ballpark series. (laughs) The national ballpark series. Yeah, I actually probably do that this uh, off season. I mean, just an article, like national parks, you can tie into minor league road trips. Yeah, that's a cool idea. We could do a national park guide instead of the ballpark guides. Hey, once again, this podcast is becoming a pitch meeting. Exactly. We continue. Well, and I feel like that is very fitting for this week's episode of the show before the show as we welcome you in. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, You can get in touch with us if you so choose podcast at milb.com send us your questions your thoughts your comments uh and you can send us questions along the lines of what we're going to discuss on this week's episode of the show before the show because it's late november baseball season is over here in the northern hemisphere uh at least in the americas yesterday ichiro uh led a team of retired uh japanese players against a, a japanese high school girls team uh and ichiro threw a complete game which is very cool so there's still baseball going on some places in the in the northern hemisphere but not here really uh, in the U.S., unfortunately. So we didn't have a ton of actual baseball stuff to talk about. So we decided to kind of go on a, a journey of getting to know each other because of a conversation that we had before we started recording, I don't know, a couple of months ago, where for some reason we just started like deep diving into each of our backgrounds in baseball. And one of us, as we were in the midst of this conversation, said, we should do an episode like this where we all kind of ask each other questions about you know our backgrounds and how we got into this industry and how we got to these jobs and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of like that idea and, and we're going to do it today. Yeah. This is good timing too. Like you said, not just because of the, the dearth. See, now I'm using that word. Oh, you did not, listen last week. I did listen last week. Look it's at amazing. me doing callbacks to shows I'm not on, uh, the He's dearth of baseball, but, but also just like, you know, I, I envisioned this episode, like you said earlier, Tyler, like being something people are taking with them on their travels. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a thing to chat about while you're stuck in traffic on I-95 for some of us or, you know, whatever, whatever road is taking you home this week or, you know, after Thanksgiving, this is something that, that can be evergreen. You can return to over the, and the title of this podcast, be the roads that take you home. Cause that was a very cool line that you just spun Sam writing it down as we speak. Yes. There we Fantastic. go. Fantastic. 
Uh, and yeah, and we've all, you know, we have all found a home of sorts in baseball and in minor league baseball and in business coverage and prospect coverage and all that. And uh, so that's what we're going to do on this week's episode. Here is the format. We have each come up with three questions for our co-hosts. So I've got three questions for Sam. I've got three questions for Ben. And we are going to ask them of each other. Now, they're not all specifically just career related. They might be baseball related. They might be a little bit life related. Um, but we are going to each get a chance to ask our three questions of our co-workers and uh We'll try to, you know, not ramble too much, at least in my case. You guys actually give good, concise answers. I just talk nonstop. I'll do my best to not do that. But, um, yeah, Sam is going to use his his trusty random order generator, otherwise known as Google. Uh, and... No, it's actually, it's random.org. In case they want to yeah. I feel like you should just log into that. It should just be like a different photo every day. Like here's the a different website. Here's the Western Kentucky mascot eating a sandwich. You're like, that's random. Uh, uh, it says I'm viewing this form securely. So we okay, good. On the, the, res- the results, the results cannot be compromised. Yep. So I put our names in alphabetically. Ben is watching me do this. I'm about to hit randomize. That'll determine our order today. This is good. This is very good uh, oversight. This is like we could be running a polling station now. Like we have a poll worker. We have a poll observer. This is we're very str- I'm proud of us here. Hey, if the Academy Awards wants to reach out to us to allow us to, to check their moonlight, uh, you guys just won best picture. Yeah, right. All right, I'm pressing the button. Here it goes. The list randomizer has come up with the following order. I will go first, Tyler will go second, okay. and Ben will be third. Okay. I'm into STB. it. STB. We're also going in order of age. Uh, We're in the middle of time. What are you, what are you I was going to say age before beauty, but then you would be the... Dang it, that means you're the most beautiful. Dang it! Damn straight. <sighs> I'm the middle and everything. That feels very accurate, actually. <laughs> I'd just be mid, as the as the kids say. Okay, so STB, we are also going to go in order of those names for the questions. So for Sam, I'll ask my questions, then Ben. For me, Ben will ask his questions, then Sam. And then for Ben, it'll be Sam and then me. And uh, let's kick it off, shall we? Yeah, let's. it's a Sam Dykstra segment, everyone. Uh, yeah. Let's start, Sam, with a uh, – you can provide an overview before we get into the questions of just uh, your career in a nutshell, how you got to be sitting next to me right now and talking to Col- talking to Tyler in Colorado over Zoom. Well, I left my desk about 15. No, uh, so yeah, so we'll call this the resume. <laughs> Establishing things. Um, so as I mentioned, I went to a non-football school. That school was Boston University. Uh, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, Palmer, Mass, uh, as Tyler loves to yell in an accent on occasion. Um, all my friggin' mess there it is i had to wait i had to uh, give it an extra beat so you thought i wasn't gonna do it yeah palmer is about an hour and a half outside of boston so when i was looking at schools i wanted to get into journalism i wanted to be a writer a sports writer. i actually thought it was way further away by the way i didn't realize you were only 90 minutes outside of boston yeah i mean it's it could even be an Small hour 15, state. depending on who's driving and how traffic's going um so yeah boston was like a good distance away it was close to home but not too close it was a it was a step up for me uh, as a city, you know, Palmer has 12,000 people, Boston, a much bigger place. Um, and the campus was right down the practically incorporates Fenway Park, to be honest with you. It's not even down the street. It is like right there uh, in Kenmore Square going west down Commonwealth Avenue. Uh, I remember my dad, I got BU was my first campus visit. Uh, and my dad turned to me and just we had this feeling of like going to Fenway. 
like this is just your college experience and he said i'm not supposed to say this but this feels very you i'm like you know what that's kind of true uh so i did end up going to bu was there for three and a half years um studied journalism graduated with a journalism degree from the college of communication uh and while i was there i interned at weei.com which is the sports radio talk station their website which at the time it still is this way uh, but at the time was very heavily invested in writing its own stuff. This wasn't just covering what was on the radio. This was beat writers going to games, all four major sports, college sports in Boston. Um, so I interned there twice, two different summers, got to cover actual Red Sox games while I was there, uh, which was a huge boon to my career. Uh, and then I graduated January 2012, semester early, was applying everywhere. And, you know, one of the jobs that had an opening was MILB.com. And, uh, you know, I applied there, had some, I had covered Pawtucket Red Sox games. Like I said, I had covered Boston Red Sox games. So I had a decent resume to do it. I had covered BU sports and they said like, yeah, do you want to come move down to New York city and cover minor league baseball from eight to two every night? And I was like, yes, I do. Uh, so I started this job in March, 2012. And I've been here ever since. I mean, I, I started working nights like many of us have. Um, covering, you know, writing nightly recaps of what was happening in the minor leagues with top prospects and just other standout stories. Uh, moved day side, wrote the tool shed column for a while there, which was twice a week uh, on just guys who I thought were noteworthy or the trends that I was noticing across minor league baseball. Uh, and then two and a half years ago, the minor MILB.com team merged with the pipeline team. Uh, I moved more into prospect rankings, working with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Uh, on that and a ton of other stuff some of the stuff like mlb pipeline game of the month i helped spearhead uh but for you know many many years now the big one of the biggest things i do every week is this show uh which is one of the things i'm most proud of in my professional career so i think that catches us up i think that's that's where things stand today um so there we go who wants tyler you're first tyler. Ben, before we start with Sam, do you feel as though there was an adequate, is there anything that we're missing? Um, I think that was adequate enough. Okay. It's a launching yeah. yeah, I think so too. I think it's good. Yeah, I just want to make sure. A little tangent into like maybe how you got your heart broken in college at one point or something like that. But no, we'll keep it. We'll keep it on topic and uh, just go right to Tyler. We'll save that for the Patreon that we're never, ever. Yeah, that we're never going to create. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Um, okay, Sam, uh, one of my favorite things about you, among all of my favorite things about you, of which there are many, is uh, I love that you're one of those uh, people like me, like Ben, like Josh, uh, like so many of us, who you see a lot of the romance in baseball, uh, whether it's history and records and all that type of stuff. What are some of your earliest memories, obviously growing up in Massachusetts and, uh, you know, being a, a Red Sox fan, there is so much that you can reach to that is part of that romance and that history. But what, when do you remember really feeling like, oh, I'm hooked on that side of this sport? Yeah, I, um, I mean, there are a couple things that that take me immediately to mind. I mean, like you said, growing up in New England, I mean, my my dad grew up on Long Island, so he didn't have as many Red Sox specific stories, but my mom did. Uh, she grew up in Boston, just outside Boston for a while, then moved to Connecticut, but they were always Bostonians at heart, really. Uh, and like my grandma grew up in Maine and was telling me stories of like her brother. And I still have a picture of this, actually, her, my, my great uncle. Uh, 
there's a picture of him with Ted Williams. Ted Williams just like went fishing in Maine a bunch and would meet up with locals. And so they, like it's him hanging out in a parlor showing off how big his fish is. And there's my uncle laughing in the corner hearing this story from Ted Williams. And it just made it so accessible. Like my my mom would tell me stories of how they would go to games at Fenway in the the 60s. And, you know, Rico Petroselli, Yaz, all those guys were just there. They were they were accessible. They were legends you could reach out and touch and and get balls signed with. And then, uh, you know, she had two sisters and they would go play with a signed ball in the yard. And I'm like, that could have paid for our college, uh, technically, if you had kept that around. Um, so just hearing those stories growing up. And I remember, like, specifically, we used to meet up with my grandma every Saturday uh, just for lunch down in Connecticut. And for some reason, I was always just so enraptured by, like, how many games above 500 the Red Sox were. I think that's like your seven-year-old brain is like, I can count this number. So let's just stick with that. And at that point, 1997, this is like just before Pedro got there. Nomar is becoming a thing. Mo Vaughn is like about to leave for, for LA, but like the team, there's something there, uh, but they weren't the heights of 2004 yet. So like being above 500 was a good start. Like, let's just stick to that. Uh, I, I have fond memories of that. And then when Pedro came, it's funny, you like when you're eight or nine, you just assume what's happening now is normal. Things are going to be like this all the time. There's always going to be a major league strikeout leader with 300 strikeouts. And then you age, and you're like, the the older I get, the more I realize how special those 1999, 2000 seasons were for Pedro Martinez. And just like having that as your guiding light was just so awesome to know he was always going to be pitching every fifth day and just dominating in ways that nobody was at that time because it was an era where offense was going crazy. So I think that really latched in. That was also the time Red Sox hosted the All-Star game in 1999. Somewhere I still have a VHS tape of Pedro starting that game, um, striking out guys like, you know, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. Um, and it, that just crystallized, like, this game is really special. It, and it happened at the same time as Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, right? Like, that that season, if you were growing up, seeing that and thinking, like, again, is this normal? And that everybody telling you, no, this is not normal. This is going for history. This is something that does not happen. You know, it just happens once in 40 years. Um, so I was just like, this is the game, man. This is this is where special things happen. And I latched onto that. You know, at one point, I got my own room. Uh, I'd been sharing a room for my with my sister growing up, and we painted Fenway Park on one of the walls. Cool. And this was before baseball reference really took off. So my dad, like, emailed somebody. And he sent a letter to us back, and we got the exact scoreboard of what it looked like when Ted Williams hit his home run in his final at-bat. Oh, that is awesome. So in my childhood bedroom, I think it says the Orioles 4, Red Sox 2. And if you go in there, you're like, why are the Red you have any box? <laughs> Your team is losing? Yeah. And we we found out exactly what it looked like. And that we uh, and we got, like, the out-of-town scores from that day, and we, we did a bunch of research. So that is that's, super that's cool. what I grew up with. It was just – and then 4 happened, and, you know, you're – you're gone at that point. Like that's just there's no there's nothing else to save you. You are you are hooked for life. That is super cool. Um, okay, I want to ask you a question about the job side of things. Uh, you noted to us that you started in the overnight group, and um, you know you're doing news coverage and covering um, nightly recaps and and breakout you know players from that night and all that. When did you start to make that move to the toolshed column, which was so much more prospect skills centric, prospect evaluation centric, and now where you are uh, as one of the you know our prospect rankings gurus and all of that with pipeline? When did that transformation start for you, and was that something that you kind of sought out and wanted to do, 
or did that come along unexpectedly that you turn into more of a prospect analyst? Yeah, that that came along more organically, I would say. Um, somebody asked me this the other day. They were like, did you always want to get into scouting? Is that where you started? And it's like, no, I always wanted to be a writer, which is what I brought up. You know, I wanted to be a, a journalist. I wanted yeah. to tell stories. And that's one of the things I loved about what we did when I first started here was it was not just recaps. It was not so-and-so went two for four with two homers. It was like, hey, find the story here. Like, find the trend, find what makes this interesting beyond just the headline of a guy hitting two homers. And we were doing two of those a night, and you're covering it coast to coast. Uh, it was always keeping you on your toes and always having to search out for those stories in quick time. Um, so an opportunity came to me where I was offered, you can move day side, which, you know, makes for a little saner work-life balance. So I jumped on it. Uh, but there weren't that many minor league games happening there. So how are you going to fill your time? What are you going to be doing for us? A lot of it was writing breaking news. If a trade happened, I was the guy who wrote it. Um, so there, there's that side of it where you're breaking things down very quickly. But there was also the opportunity to start something new. And, and Toolshed ended up being that. And that was a little bit more of a long-term project. Like there was a more time to study the game and study trends and, and what stands out to me or what is go going on in news right now. Not just, hey, this thing came in, get it back to us very quickly. Um, and in doing that, it allows you to study the game. It allows you to watch guys hit and it allows you to ask them questions. Uh, the one great thing about the minor leagues is how accessible these guys are. You know, they haven't, they're not being hounded with interviews all the time. So getting somebody on the horn and talking to them for 15 minutes about why are you throwing a curveball instead of a slider now was huge for me. Uh, so then when we merged groups, you know, pipeline and, and MILB, I had this resume and this whole portfolio now of like, I've talked to guys about this stuff for years now. Um, writing prospect reports is a different animal. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's not as much find the featurey storyline stuff. It's just, what is the meat and potatoes? What is this guy good at? What is he bad at? But I had been doing that work for a long time, just in a different format. Um, so it, I, I won't say it was a seamless transition. Um, it, it's a different walk of life, a, a different way of going about things, but it, it's, progressed organically which is you know what i was saying there at the beginning all right my last question for you uh baseball brings so many different people into our lives uh is there a story that you remember that's kind of your own personal um i don't want to say favorite but maybe one that's just stuck with you as a special one to you whether it's a a prospect profile that you wrote or or even something on the scouting side that you wrote uh where you've always you know i feel like every artist every musician has like their biggest album and like the album that they love the most uh what is that for you yeah i mean i i can tell a number of stories like of stuff like this uh let's see the one that immediately came to mind when you asked about that was carl edwards jr was our minor league pitcher of the year. And I want to say it was 2013. Friend of the podcast. Friend of back, the podcast. Back yeah. in went, went by years. CJ at the time. Went by so CJ might, at the time. I might say CJ Edwards just because my mind. And I do remember texting him for an interview once and not knowing what to call him because he had just decided, no, nah, I think I want to go by Carl. Uh, and I asked him, like, do you have a preference? And he was like, no, nah, you can call me whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah. just give me guidance. Yeah, but he had such a great story because he was drafted so late in the draft. I want to say it was like 47th round. It's a round that certainly doesn't exist anymore. Um, and he was just a find, you know, as somebody who was like pitching in adult leagues on back lots. Like he was, I think he was going to go to Juco. Uh, nobody expected much out of him. But, 
you know, they negotiated, do you want to go pro? And he's like, well, who knows if this opportunity is ever going to come again? So sure, sure, I'll jump on it. And was posting a sub two ERA, was known as the string bean slinger, which is one of the great nicknames. Um, Incredible nickname. Never really shook that. But the fact that he made the majors is, is still stellar for where he was drafted. And just getting to tell that kind of origin story was really cool. And I think that's how I wrote the piece was like, hey, this is the origin story of this guy. He, yeah, he put himself on the radar this year and, uh, you know, has a really good fastball for his size and a, a good breaking stuff. Uh, but this is not a common story. And getting him uh, on the phone for a while to talk about that stuff and him talking about pitching against adults and like an umpire just going crazy with every strike he threw because nobody expected it. Even those guys on the field were surprised. And hearing stories about how scouts found him on on those, you know, adult leagues essentially uh, was really, really cool. So that's one thing that stands out. Another one was Jose Fernandez, you know, sadly to look upon now, but he was another pitcher of the year for us. I think that was in 2012. And I wrote up a whole story and I couldn't get him. I was trying through the Marlins. I was trying to DM him. He had talked to us tons of times. He'd always been really good to us, unsurprisingly for anybody who knows Jose's personality. And uh, just couldn't get him, couldn't get him. So I got people around him. You know, it was kind of like a gay Talese. Frank Sinatra has a cold, like just talk to other people about Jose Fernandez. And they all had these really cool stories. One of which was, I think their pitching coordinator told me he had this orange glove. And I said, that's a little too flashy. If you're going to wear it, you have to own it and you have to pitch like it. And Jose's like, all right, I will. And again, pitcher of the year became one of the phenoms. That's uh, awesome. Untimely passing. Uh, but so I wrote that story. A few weeks later, I get a call from him. He's like, hey, sorry, I was in the Dominican Republic. I had hadn't seen your message until now what's up i was like oh hey jose uh you won an award uh it's already been announced we already wrote the story but like how are you doing he's like oh really what this is awesome <laughs> and seeing who he became and and again just the the star he was for him to be just be like yeah let me call this guy back and just see what's up so we talked for 20 minutes just about general stuff what he was doing to prep for the, i never used it for anything um but you know the again that speaks to the accessibility of guys in the minor leagues and what makes a lot of this so much fun. And I go back to a lot of the podcast interviews we've done uh, over the years, which were similar stuff. I mean, Blake Snell just won a Cy Young Award. He was definitely a friend of the show and a friend of the site. It was always great at talking to us and, and giving us information and giving us good quotes. And, um, you know, like Tyler Stevenson talking to us during the pandemic and Josh Young talking to us during the pandemic twice because it didn't work out uh, the first time with the recording. Uh, you know, you, you stay in this job long enough and you're going to have stories on basically anybody who goes to a, who's in a baseball game. Um, I have friends who come with me and they're just like, what do you know about this guy? And I'm like, oh, yeah, he did. It's not always just tools. It's like, what other stories do you have? And I love that part. I like it. Those are my three. Ben, you're up. Sam Dykstra. Then gathering his materials like a prosecutor, yeah. by the way. Exactly. I just turned I turned Sam over for cross-examination. This is making me more nervous. I, I was like, oh, I'm going first. Okay. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm going first. Um, well, we've talked – you've talked quite a bit about your career so far. It's evolution, that kind of thing. And this is, uh, on one level, a very basic question. But uh, you've been doing this a long time now. It's what you wanted to do right out of college, and you're still doing it. You're still a pretty young man. You've got what I would consider to be a you know diverse skill set. You know, sometimes I make fun of you because you seem like you have everything in order and all these little things you know how to do that I don't know how to do. So it seems like you know you've got you got your wits about you. 
So, okay. given all the question here, given all those um, you know, traits of your character, where do you see yourself in this career in let's say like twenty years? Oh, geez. Based on how it's evolved so far, I hate when people ask me this kind of thing, and it is kind of a basic question. But given that you have a broad range of experience, you're a likable and earnest guy. You're already at this point now. Yeah, what is 20 50, years? 50 something Sam Dykstra. What is he doing? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, the good thing about baseball is that baseball is not going anywhere. So it's like easy to say, like, this industry will exist. Now, what technology are we going to be using in 20 years to tell these stories? I don't know. That I cannot predict. Um, my my boilerplate answer to this, whenever it's asked of me, is just I want to be somewhere in twenty years where somebody sees my name on a story or whatever we're calling it at that point piece of content, even though I hate the word content, uh, sees my name on something and is like, all right, I can trust this. That's all I want. It's just like I'm I'm trying to provide people with information, um, you know, trying to make them better understand the game in some way especially what we do now. And it's always been this way, but like I love going to minor league games and somebody's batting and knowing somebody read something that I wrote to know the scouting report ahead of time. Like that's, that's where I want to be in 20 years. It's just, it's still in that place where somebody sees my byline and is like, okay, I can trust this or seeks it out. Even that, that I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say that's where I am now, but like, I just want to have that trustworthy status. And I, you know, I think the more reps you get, the more you build up with this kind of stuff. Uh, I've gotten to this point now, but like, hopefully it's even better in 20 years. We'll see. But I, I, I can't predict the future in terms of, like I said, what the medium will be. But as long as I'm still in a place where I'm telling baseball stories and people are coming to me for those baseball stories, I'll be happy. Okay, so you still want to be in this realm in 20 years. Uh, and like we've said, you've been doing it for a while, but there's always the road not taken, the path not taken. We've talked about this kind of thing in the past. Um, baseball just didn't work out or it wasn't something you pursued or whatnot. What do you think you would be doing if it had nothing to do with baseball? Oof. That's the thing is that like I, so much of my path was geared towards becoming a sports writer. So like my first thought, with your question is I would be doing other sports. <laughs> like I, I, you know, coming out of school, it, the, you know, the fine tuned ears out there might've recognized that I said I graduated in January and I didn't get a job until March. So for two months I was applying everywhere. Uh, you know, one of the jobs I applied to was covering high school sports in North Dakota. So I was like, you just need to get out there and do whatever you can. Um, one of the jobs that I was also interviewing for at the same time I got this one was for a magazine that was basically sent itself to like gyms across America and just was telling people about exercise techniques and like fitness, general fitness. Um, and one thing that drew me to that was that they had an annual convention in Brazil. And I'm like, I don't know if this is what I want to be doing, but if I can get a trip at, at a, or to Brazil out of this, like that's something I just need to find something to establish myself in. Um, so I, it, I know it's a, it's not very far out there, but if I wasn't doing baseball, I'd probably be doing another sport. I wrote about hockey a lot in college. Um, basketball is my second favorite love. Uh, so I would have found a way maybe to write about basketball. Uh, I would like to think I'd, I'd be writing somewhere. 
Uh, like maybe there's an off chance I'm out teaching a history class somewhere too. Like that, that, that could have existed. I come from two teachers. I value education and passing that along to people. Um, and in many ways that is similar to what we do now. It's just reporting to a group of 20 uh, every day. But I, I would think I would, I would be hunting for a job in sports somehow and writing about sports and sharing the stories. I could also imagine you writing speeches for like a democratic Senator from Massachusetts Something like something like that. That was one thing I took. I could definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. So who knows? There's there's infinite possibilities for us all. Um, and you are a, a man of many interests. And this is again a cliche question. Moving away from things professionally, and this is going to be kind of a first thought, best thought kind of thing, as opposed to endlessly qualifying and going back and forth. But you know, the proverbial desert island. Maybe it's just a basement you can't escape from. I like desert island over basement to be to be <laughs> clear. It sounds way darker when you put it that way. Well, either way, you don't have access to much, but you get one movie, one book, and one record. Oh. Oh boy. I like this a lot. All right. I, I have movie and book immediately off, off the top of my head. And I, I guess I have album too. Uh movie is Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen brothers. It's my by far my favorite movie of all time. Um, it's just, it hit me at a right time in moving to New York, uh, you know, telling the story of the folk scene in the village, Oscar Isaac is terrific in it. The music is great. I have the soundtrack, the CD in my car still to this day, like in case my phone craps out, I have the CD at least, and I can be driving around to that. I know every word to that album. Um, I sought out that album on vinyl for years to the point where it was a joke with some of my friends and I finally got it, uh, in 2020 because I was like, this is going to become my thing. <laughs> Um, so that's my favorite movie. That's the movie I would bring. I could watch that all the time. Um, book East of Eden by Steinbeck. Um, it would, it would either be that or Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath was what I wrote my college essay about actually. Um, but East of Eden is so rich in terms of the story it's telling. It's a long story. It has great characters. It's stealing a lot. I don't want to say stealing, but it's borrowing a lot from the Bible, um, I'm sure every time I read that, there's something else you're going to find, some other corollary. Uh, so East of Eden would be my book because it's a it's a big one that would take some time. And then album, again, to play into sports writer stereotype, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. I listen to that thing all the time. And like I, I saw Bruce this summer. I read his book this summer to prepare for the concert. Uh, it's just it's so deep. It's so great. You realize the bangers that feel like they're cliche. Again, you find something new in them if you really want to listen to If you want to just coast listening to Born to Run, that's fine. You can totally do that. If you want to get deep into it, you can do that. It would get the right mix for me on a desert island. Sam Dykstra, everyone. Sam Dykstra. Please hold your applause till the end. (laughs) Yeah, I hope hope people learn something (laughs) about me, I guess, through that. I will say one thing about Bruce. Uh, cause that is like a sports writer thing. Like, ah, oh, every sports writer loves, I do. Um, I'm like, I, uh, I don't really have strong feelings one way or another about Bruce's music. I think it's perfectly fine. I do really admire him as a person, but he is one of those artists that I'm like, oh, I wish I, I sort of wish that I was alive when he was coming onto the scene because you put it very well. You listen to some of those songs. You think like, oh, they're so cliche, but it's because like they came out before you were born. So you've been hearing them as a backdrop to your life for your entire life. You don't know what it feels like 
to have heard that in 1980, whatever, when it came out for the first time, there are so many bands in human history that I feel that way about like the Beatles are that way to me too, where it's like, you hear a Beatles song now and it's like, Oh yeah, it's a Beatles song. But to hear it in a stage when it was revolutionary, I think would have been very cool. Yeah. I can only imagine hearing jungle land for the first time and just being like, Oh, this song keeps going and it's just building and building and building and building. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny what becomes cliche. And you think about like what's going to be cliche now that we're yeah. doing for the first time or seeing for the first time and, and you know, what, where things will stand 30 years down the road or 50 years down the road to return to Ben's question. All right. It. So Tyler, you're up next. So I will start with the questions this time. The shoes on the other foot. But give him first a, uh, yeah, Tyler, you got to oh, do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. An opening statement for the jury. Um, okay. Well, uh, I am Tyler. I'm the friendly uh, producer of this podcast from week to week. Um, yeah, I uh, born and raised Denver, Colorado in the pre-major league era here. When I was born, we only had two major league franchises in this city in the, the Broncos and Nuggets. Now we have four five if you count uh the mls franchise the the colorado rapids um so this city this area has grown a ton in my life um born and raised here i left for college my freshman year i went to washington state university small town outside of the university and uh you know i was 18 and homesick and so i transferred a little bit closer to home i went to the university of nebraska and lincoln which is about a six and a half seven hour drive from here which is funny because i know on the East Coast, that's like that's close to home for you, road trip wise. But that is like a manageable road trip. Um, there's also not a lot between here and there, uh, so the drive goes quickly. But uh, graduated from there. It's funny, Sam, to hear you talk about when you graduated school and you're just applying for any and every job for a while. Because uh, I um, did the same thing, and I applied for a job. And, and I will never forget this, uh, a play-by-play, like a high school athletics play-by-play and radio job in Anacortes, Washington. There's like a tiny town in Washington state. I remember applying for a broadcasting job with the Salem Kaiser volcanoes when they were still around. Um, yeah, sort of the same deal. I graduated in May of 2007. I didn't get my first job until November. Uh, cause I was a slacker. I did like a backpacking trip in Europe and then I just bummed around going to Rockies games during the only good season in franchise history, which was fun. It was a good time to be an unemployed college graduate, but, um, first job out of college was working for a, a sports radio station here. Um, play by play broadcasting has always been my goal. So got into sports talk radio first as a producer, and then I was a host of a morning news show, a sports news show. Uh, it's kind of like a morning radio sports center, which was very cool and something that was very unexpected to me to be doing at 23 years old uh, in a top you know, 20 media market. And like Sam was saying, you know, I got to cover a lot of big sports at a, at a formative and young age in my career, so I covered – the NFL and Major League Baseball and the NBA and the NHL. And that was amazing being in in locker rooms and being, you know, in press boxes and all that. And you learn a ton. Uh, it was also a very bare bones, very poorly funded radio station. So it was basically me and one other guy who handled absolutely everything. We ran every show on the station. We hosted the morning drive and afternoon drive shows. He was a guy who gave a toast at my wedding a few weeks ago and has become my best friend over the last uh, 16 years now since we met. Um, 
And that really set me kind of on the the right track. Uh, and it gave me a good resume to apply for my first play-by-play job, which I landed uh, in 2009 as the then assistant radio voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, who were the high A affiliate for Atlanta that year. I was brought back the following season uh, as the lead radio guy. The offseason after my second year there, I went to Australia. I helped launch the the Australian Baseball League as the media director for the franchise in Sydney, um, which kind of got my foot in the door with international baseball. I uh, went back to Myrtle Beach for one more year in 2011. 2012, I went to Altoona. I did a season as a radio broadcaster then. Uh, the minor league radio guy life is exhausting, uh, and I was in a, a relationship at the time and ended up moving back to Denver at the end of 2012. Uh, the relationship didn't work, uh, but I'm kind of grateful for it because it put me in a position where, you know, I got some some cool stuff that's come out of it. I've been doing international baseball stuff since 2015 now. I do University of Denver athletics. Um, yeah, I think that. Oh, and this job, <laughs> <laughs> this job would be a good one to note. So. After moving back home in 2012, um, I worked at another radio station as a producer for 2013, and it really was just not the work that I wanted to do. So uh, our good friend, the three of us, Dan Marinas, uh, Dan and I had known each other for a while. He helped us convert our website over uh, when I was with the Pelicans to to being an official minor league site. And when I was with the Australian League, he was our liaison between um, the ABL and uh, MLB Advanced Media at that time. Uh, and Dan, when the uh, job came open that I ended up landing with MILB. He texted me about it and was like, Hey, I feel like you'd be a really good fit for this. If it's something you would be interested in. So essentially I applied for and got, uh, the same job that Sam started with covering, you know, new stuff overnight. And, um, just kind of evolved from there. Uh, in 2015, we established this podcast and, uh, that's been one of the really cool things, especially hearing from everybody who's listened over the years. Uh, that's been pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, I guess I was the only dork who knew how to operate Adobe Audition. So they were like, all right, well, you can be the host and producer of it since you're the one who knows what you're doing, sort of. And uh, eight years later, here we are. I, I'm not on the writing side anymore. Uh, I thankfully over the last couple of years have had enough of the broadcasting stuff come along. It's always been my dream to just do that full time. And that's I feel very lucky to be in that position. But I still get to do this podcast with you guys every week. And that's still very awesome for me. Yeah, um, give yourself more credit. The idea of like the only person who knew how to do a, a Adobe Audition. You also just laid out how you have years of broadcasting experience for crying out yeah. loud. Again, it's like uh, it's because I got Tyler talks too much in class on every report card growing up, and I was just like, well, what if I try to make that into a job? So well, that, we are. yeah, so that actually dovetails pretty well into my first question, um, which is who or what? It could be either one. It could be an event. It could be a person whatever made you realize that broadcasting was a potential career path you could actually follow. Cause I feel like a lot of people, myself included, like I thought growing up, Oh, it would be great to talk about baseball all the time, but it's like, it's, it's difficult to do to be the one who is carrying the game. So was there a specific event or somebody in your life who was just like, no, you really can do this. Keep pushing for it. You know, it's funny. I recently had, I came across a memory that really is this memory, but I haven't thought about it in so long that I don't remember who it was, uh, who said this to me, but I had a project in school. Um, I think it was in sixth grade and it was a teacher named Tim James. Uh, Mr. James, if you are tuned in, 
Uh, I always liked you, man. I hope you're doing well somewhere. You're a good dude. Uh, and I remember doing a project. It was a book report essentially. And I had read a book about sports. Surprise, surprise. And as my like creative idea for the project, I recorded a phony broadcast about like the pivotal game in this book. And I remember getting the, the grade back and it said like, great work, maybe a career path someday. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. And realizing like I'm 11 and I already have a dad bod and I'm not athletically talented. Uh, probably not going to play a sport for a living. Why don't I try doing something like this? And yeah, I think that was, I think that was what hooked me was the going from, uh, you know, pretending to be broadcasting games on, uh, Nintendo or super Nintendo or Sega Genesis or whatever to like, Oh yeah, people do do this and they get paid for it. That might be a cool thing that I should check out. And from then on, I was that was the only thing that I ever really wanted to do. All right. Well, that actually borrows from what my section second question was going to be, which is, were you someone who would have running commentary when watching sports as a teen, or did that come later? Because like I, I will do this. I did this growing up too. Like I would sit at home and be like, oh, you should bounce a, a curveball here, and then the announcer would say it right after. My parents would look at me like, what are you doing? Um, oh, yeah. Were you somebody who was doing that when you were like five watching a Nuggets game on TV? Or is that something like even in high school, you were like, I need to practice this now and sit in front of a recorder or something? Oh, no, it weirdly did come a lot. My parents will tell stories about like we used to have uh, Super Bowl parties when when I was a kid. The Broncos went to, you know, three Super Bowls in four years and got absolutely shellacked in all of them. Uh, but we would have Super Bowl parties at our house when I was a kid. And I guess I would just like wander around at like four or five years old, just like rattling off random stats to my parents' friends. And they were like, who is this? What is this kid doing? But yeah, that was always the way I watched sports was like I was I wanted to be involved in it I didn't want to be just a spectator of it um and yeah really for me it was calling video games like I I would brought you know I'd be playing Bill Walsh college football on uh, Sega Genesis and I would be broadcasting the games while I was playing them and uh there my dad still has a tape recorder in which a friend of mine named Brian Stoffer, Brian and I are calling a game on Tecmo Super Bowl. And this must be like 1990, 1991. Uh, and we're calling a game together on Tecmo Super Bowl. And I was like five years old. Uh, so I guess it's just something, you know, I feel very lucky that it's something that I have always known that I really wanted to do, but it was almost never consciously a thing that I thought about. It was just like a part of me from when I started uh, being interested in sports. So it's weird to not have like a moment that I can point to and be like, that's when I really got interested in it. I was always interested in it. There was a moment when I realized like, oh, maybe I can do this for work. Um, but yeah, it, it was always there even before that moment. All right. So th these last two questions have looked in the past. I want to look a little bit in the future now you you know been uh good enough at your job to call world baseball classic games and like you said a lot of international baseball and college hockey for a very good program there there in denver um but when you look forward to what you know your career will be what do you want your signature moment to be whoa um man that is a great question you know i right now i think my signature moment is a call that I had in the World Baseball Classic in March, which was a home run for Yu Chang uh, for Chinese Taipei. And it was, a, you know, a big momentum swinging home run. And there was a big story that had gone on with him. Initially, he wasn't going to play in the World Baseball Classic. He's 
right now the best uh, Taiwanese position player uh, on the the affiliated side in in the states, and it was a huge controversy. He was visited, I think, by the country's president or prime minister or something the day after he said that he wasn't going to play in the World Baseball Classic, and they essentially talked him into it. So it's this massive story nationally in Taiwan, and I called this big home run for him against the Netherlands. And I have a friend, Adam Wong, who's a pretty prominent baseball journalist in Taiwan, who texted me the next day and said, your voice is forever part of our national memory now. And that's the coolest thing any human being has ever said to me. Um, and that having that as a as a signature moment of my career is is pretty damn cool. I don't know in the future what I what I want it to be. I think in my uh, pursuit of this career, I've always thought like, I want to be a team's guy. I want to be a fan base's guy. I want to be the soundtrack to people's summer barbecues or to, you know, I want to be a person who's lucky enough to be wearing a jacket in the, in the TV or radio booth in October, because you're calling playoff games. Uh, I want to have a, a fan base that identifies with, with my voice. And I don't know if that'll ever happen. And I don't know if that's the route ahead of me. You know, a lot of jobs come up where you're doing more network stuff or you're, you know, kind of ping ponging around doing different sports and whatever. I would love to do all of those things too. Um, But to have that identification where people, you share a team and you share the highs and lows with people. That's what I love about sports. Um, And so I think that'd be, that'd be pretty dang cool. If it was 14 year old Tyler, I would say like, oh, I want to call the Colorado Rockies winning a world series. But now I'm realistic. Um, and so things some things don't come to fruition in life. And uh, but no, I mean, I think I think, uh, yeah, being being a team's person is for all of you out there who are a team's person, you got something very cool going on, and you should be really proud of it. I don't know if that answered it, but that's, no, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, and Sam's couple of Sam's questions were not the same as mine necessarily, but had enough overlap. I've kind of quickly trying to scramble a little and, uh, you know, have some new topics. But you just talked about your signature moment, Tyler. But then there's also the inverse of that, especially in a profession like broadcasting, where you always have an audience and it's public facing and, um, you know, your mistakes or embarrassing moments aren't just going to be for you to internalize alone, but knowing like, oh, how many other people heard that? What is an example of something you said on air or just a segment that did not go well or just one of your most cringiest or just flat out embarrassing moments on the air where it was just like, I can't believe this is happening right now. Oh, man. I've got so many. No, uh, (laughs) I actually feel like it's kind of good that I don't immediately have like, oh, gosh, it was this moment at this time. Um, I will say one one moment. That uh, is kind of out of my control. It's not really something that um, I had a handle on. But in the 2018 U23 Baseball World Cup, I was in Barranquilla, Colombia. And there was a a Cinderella story there. Mexico had never won a World Cup event in baseball in its history. And you think about Mexican baseball and all the talent that has come out of Mexico and incredible leagues that have existed there for so long. They had never won a World Cup and this U23 team in 2018 was kind of like they came out of nowhere and they were really good and they ended up uh, making it to the final playing against Japan. Japan, you know, loaded just studs everywhere. 
that game went to extra innings and it was the end of a really long tournament in which my, uh, the other broadcaster I was working with had gotten sick in the middle of the tournament. So I think there were two straight days where I did three broadcasts solo per day. And so I was just shot by the end of it. And, uh, the game goes to extra innings, of course, the, the world championship game. And, uh, <laughs> Mexico retook the lead and I think the top of the 10th and they close it out in the bottom of the 10th and there's a fly ball to right field. And as I'm yelling out, Mexico has won its first world cup. My voice cracks and it in, in rewatching it, I don't think you can tell quite as much, but in my head, I was just like, this is the first, these guys, this might be the highest of heights for these guys for the rest of their lives. And there's just some clown is like, Mexico it's one. Like I sounded like the pimply face kid from the Simpsons. Um, that one, that one definitely that sticks with me and which I guess, you know, I should feel okay that that's my worst thing. Like I didn't, uh, it wasn't some huge meltdown, uh, on air. I, I haven't had a Brockmeyer moment as of yet. Um, but yeah, that one, that one hangs with me where it's like, ah, I'm glad that I can stick that, uh, in people's memory banks of my voice cracking for, uh, for this huge moment in all these guys' lives. But the good news is we have Spanish language coverage of it also, and I'm sure they were they all have held on to that highlight and not mine. Let's hope so. Yeah, Tyler Mon, uh, hero in Taiwan, <laughs> clown in Mexico. <laughs> That's going to be on my tombstone someday. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Tyler, I think one thing that we have in common with our personalities is that we can often – veer towards self-deprecation, if not outright self-loathing. Um, you know, there's a healthy amount of that kind of thing and obviously an unhealthy amount. And then having a job like broadcasting where you, you know, the camera's on you, the focus is on you for a lot of the time. You have to project expertise and confidence. Do you think you've gotten better as your career has gone along at sort of reconciling those parts of your personality, the self-loathing part and the confidence confidence part? Is it compartmentalized? I mean, how do you deal with those like warring parts of yourself, which I think is a pretty common thing for a lot of people? That is a great question. And it's a question that I had on my list for you, too. So we're we're probably going to go back to that. Um, I I do think that there's a lot more compartmentalization um, than probably is healthy. Uh, but I will say that I have gotten better at this stage of my career and being like, no, you got to give yourself some credit sometimes. Um, anybody who's listened to this podcast for any length of time probably knows that my hero is Conan O'Brien. And I think so much of my self-deprecation and self-loathing in life came from that guy being the formative influence on my, uh, comedic personality for all of my formative years in life. Um, and one thing that I've really loved about, uh, Conan having a podcast now is that he, uh, gets to go deeper into why, for example, he feels so much self-loathing and so much imposter syndrome and so much of, uh, oh, this is good. I keep faking them into thinking I can do this. I keep getting away with it. I haven't been found out yet. It is comforting to know that other people do feel that way. And there are a lot of things to be said about, um, you know, stepping outside yourself and looking at what you've accomplished and thinking like, no, I think I do deserve some credit for this. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, the last calendar year or 14 months have been very transformative for me because for so long, you kind of think you're doing small potatoes things and, um, yeah, you're doing international baseball and all that, but it's, you know, it's smaller level competitions and it's, it's college basketball for a small major and it's all those types of things doing the world baseball classic qualifiers last year and doing a job that was good enough that, 
you know, the highest of high ups at MLB Network said, oh, let's have this guy do the main classic and do the opening round in Taiwan. That did kind of force me to think like, all right, well, I guess I can't be that terrible uh, to have people who really don't owe you anything validate your work by saying, yes, you were you were good enough for this. Uh, that was really cool. The weirdest thing and the thing that I should never uh, take too much happiness out of is like the reaction online to the broadcast that uh, Ryan Roland Smith and I did in Taiwan. I did not get a single point of negative feedback from strangers on the internet, which is very strange. Uh, it's because we're not strangers, Tyler. Well, right, exactly. You guys just crushed me. Like Sam would just, I would wake up every morning in Taipei, in Taichung with a text from Sam that says, you suck, don't forget it. And I was like, man, that's harsh. Um, The last person in the world who would do that, by the way, your pal and mine, Sam Dykstra. Um, But that was really cool. Like um, my college best friend would, would text, you know, Reddit comments that he saw about me and Ryan that were like, oh, these guys are really good together. And, and that sort of thing where you do think like, okay, I guess I must be all right at this. If, if these people who have no reason to lie to me are giving me feedback, that's good. I still definitely, uh, especially in sports that I have not done quite as much. Like I've done hockey now for six years. I still feel like a novice broadcasting hockey. And it's interesting because you said like you do sort of have to, you know, be an authority on these things. I still feel like I'm, uh, when I venture into trying to give any sort of, uh, intelligent input or analysis on, on hockey or basketball or, uh, you know, lacrosse when I've done lacrosse games or anything like that, I do still feel kind of like, all right, why don't you just bump the brakes and just talk about what's going on on TV or the radio fella. Nobody needs your analysis work. So some of that is still there where it's, um, you do kind of feel uh, like an imposter, but it has gotten better. Things have gotten better. There is still that loud voice. It's like someday they're going to find you out. Uh, but there are, I have a lot of really good people who also feel that, you know, Ryan Roland Smith, who I did those broadcasts with uh, in Taiwan and in Germany and in Panama last year, Ryan pitched in the big leagues for six years. And Ryan said, every time he took the mound, he thought at some point they're going to figure me out. And so to have people like that to talk through things with is it's really helpful. And it helps you know that you're not alone also, which is something that that Ben and I have talked about, too. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to spin that question back to you, Ben, at some point, too. All right. Yeah, well, it's good to know you're not out there with, like, the voice of uh, Carrie's mom in your head in the movie Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. It's not a very good impression. Yeah, it's an it. impression that Ben has been carrying in his back pocket for <laughs> decades. That that impression was actually just me doing the final out of that U23 World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tally, similar to Sam, I was going to ask like a more pop culture question to end, uh, but then you kind of answered a lot of it with uh, your little diversion, digression into Conan O'Brien. So I'll just make it specific to him. I mean, I think it's safe to, safe to say he's, as you said, he's your greatest comedic influence and just a huge inspiration in general. Just say there's somebody who's never watched any Conan O'Brien bits, routines, skits, sketches, whatever you want to call them, and they just have to go on cold. Like, what do you think is really the best representation for an introduction to Conan O'Brien? And Let's just remove the old timey baseball. Yeah, can't be that one because that's too obvious. Too obvious. But beyond that, uh, what would you say? Conan's travel shows obviously are the things now that everybody uh, loves the most, and and his remotes have always been his best work. Uh, where he's not in a studio, it's not a scripted thing. You can go out and you can play off of people, uh, and everybody talks about 
you know, when Conan went to um, Korea and he went to a spa with Stephen Yun or he went to Germany and he went to like a nude beach with Flula Borg. Um, my favorite, I think, full episode of what was then called Conan Without Borders uh, is when he went to Armenia. Uh, with his assistant, Sonam of Sessian, whose family is Armenian, uh, and they fled the Armenian genocide uh, in the early part of the 1900s. And the reason it's my favorite is because it showcases like everything about Conan that somebody could know and love. Uh, he goes and he's goofy and he's trying to connect with all these people and just make them laugh in the pursuit of pure human joy. He's just trying to connect with other people. People have no idea who he is. Who is this six foot four weirdo with red hair from America? And why is he like dancing uh, like he's having a, a full body, uh, you know, he's being electrocuted or something in the middle of a market. Um, but then in that episode as well, uh, he and Sona go to the Armenian Genocide Memorial, and it's really somber, and it's really heavy. And uh, Sona finds the name of her grandparents, I think, or great-grandparents' village that was raised and burned um, during the Armenian Genocide. And watching how human he is in that moment, not only with her, but with other people who are there, uh, that's the type of heart that that guy has. And I think it showcases that like, Hey, you can be one of the biggest celebrities and one of the biggest names in the world and still be a good human being. And there's something very reassuring about that to me, um, where you just assume like people hit this level of stardom where it's just like, Oh, everybody turns into a jerk. I don't think that is true for everybody necessarily. I think a lot of people do stay good people. I think if Bruce Springsteen were to rock, walk into that room with you guys right now, I think it would be an incredible life-changing moment for you because I think at heart, he's a good person uh, who interacts with people in a good way. Um, the same obviously cannot be said for all celebrities. I would say the same can't be said for most all celebrities, but I think there are a lot of good people out there who you look at and think, oh yeah, that's, that's a guy who I think would be a friendly dude if you met him. Uh, I was having this conversation with with my wife after Matthew Perry died. I just finished reading his memoir like an hour before we started recording today. I said like the highest grade, the highest compliment that I could give a celebrity is saying, I think if you would have met him, you would have been a nice guy. And that's what I think about Matthew Perry. Like I think he was probably a nice guy if you came across him. Um, and so that's uh, for me with Conan, it's like, oh, I think that's a good human being. I think he's a good father. I think he's a good friend. I think he's a good husband. Um, and that's something to aspire to and to admire in life. Uh, so if you haven't seen the episode of Conan in Armenia, it's it's very cool. And I encourage you to check it out. All right, Ben, you're up. Yeah. Hello. It's me, Ben Hill. Uh Native, well, native of Cleveland, Ohio, but moved to Ambler, Pennsylvania when I was about two years old. Grew up a gigantic. I never knew that at all. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we're native. one sentence in, and that's a new fact about you. I didn't know you were born in Cleveland. Yeah, I was born in Cleveland in a hospital in Cleveland. I forget huh. the name, but it's now defunct. We actually lived in a small town called Ravenna, which is closer to Akron. Um, my dad went to grad school at Kent State at one point. I kind of forget the specifics about. I guess that's what brought them then to Ohio at the time, uh, but then moved to uh, Ambler, Pennsylvania, outside of the Philly suburbs. Uh, yeah, 1980. So I was too young to. It was August of 1980. So I was too young to take in, you know, Philly's uh, pennant race fever. But uh, I think it helped for my parents. My mom, you know, grew up mostly in Jersey, but had never really been a baseball fan. My dad, 
you know, had some background in Ohio and Illinois, some in Jersey, but he wasn't really a Phillies fan, but they also didn't feel particularly a strong allegiance to any other team. So I think they moved when we moved, it got them right into the Phillies, especially my dad. And uh, I didn't need any encouragement. I was just obsessed with the Phillies <laughs> from a very, very young age. Mike Schmidt, the first hero. Um, you know, I always wanted to work in baseball as a kid, mostly as a player. And then secondary, I just wanted to be like the next Harry Callis and call Phillies games. Um, but when I went to college, I never really pursued anything related to sports at all. I remained a baseball fan, but, uh, you know, I went to the university of Pittsburgh, a state school that was already all, all the way across the state. So gave me a new, new perspective on things. And I was wondering what to do. And I had a communications degree. I was really mostly interested in like the media and media analysis, almost less writing and more trying to understand how the media works. Um, and the inherent biases at play and that kind of thing. That's a topic I'm still really interested in, but uh, neither here nor there. Uh, but how any of that would have translated to a job, I don't know. I was obsessed with college radio. Um, you know, went through a series of directorships at our college radio station. Uh, super into music, being a music fan, played drums a little bit. I'd say, you know, in college into my early 20s, it was more music than baseball for me. But I had no real sense of what I wanted to do. I graduated college and uh, I liked living in Pittsburgh, so uh, didn't know what to do. And I joined AmeriCorps, you know, the Domestic Peace Corps, did a Pittsburgh-based program, worked at a uh, charter school in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, I was basically like a teaching assistant for like middle, middle and high school English and social studies. And then I got an opportunity to move into New York City at the age of 23, which is its own long convoluted story. But basically, my mom was getting remarried to a guy who had an apartment in New York city who had been living there for decades. It was rent controlled. So I just kind of had an opportunity to move to New York because my mom's soon to be husband uh, had a place I could live. So as much as I like Pittsburgh, you know, the AmeriCorps was just a, whatever, a 10 and a half month commitment. I didn't have anything really holding me down in Pittsburgh or anywhere. Always loved New York city. So I just went to New York city, um, you know, started working at UPS cause that's where my stepdad worked was briefly in the teamsters union, which is a, surreal little fact that I've now looked back on. I'm like, what? You were in Teamsters Union, local 804? True story, though. Um, went back to education work. That eventually culminated in uh, a full-time year as a teaching assistant in a third grade school, a third grade charter school, 2003-2004 school year. And it was a great experience, but it really wore me down. And I was still young and figuring out what I wanted to do. And I just after that year, I thought, I don't know if this is my path. And uh so I hit reset and just started temping and doing all sorts of jobs, you know, office jobs, nine to five stuff. I was on Craigslist all the time, was looking for gigs and just saying yes to just about any opportunity with no real sense of what anything would lead to. So I did a lot of random stuff and has some pretty funny stories in those years. And in that era, 2005, uh, I got a call from my friend, Zach Ample, the infamous Zach Ample, you know, ball hawk. Uh, who I'd met on Craigslist years before because he posted an ad on Craigslist looking for someone to play baseball in Central Park. So I became friends with him uh, through a Craigslist ad, having no idea who he was or <laughs> who he would become. Um, but he called me. He was like, hey, and through his own connections, he got a job writing game recaps for minor league baseball's new website. And uh, he's like, they need more people to write game recaps because in those early days of the website, and this was the very first year, 2005, um, they recapped every single game at night. Like someone would write a recap of every single game. So they need every more single game. Yeah. That lasted for the next couple seasons. 
until Holy someone cow. finally, and it was like kind of fulfilling the contract between MLB Advanced Media, which ran the website, and Minor League Baseball, then a separate entity. You know, they had the. And what do we have at the time? 160 teams? Yeah, 160 teams. So, so you guys were churning out 80 recaps a night? Yeah, and almost none of them had quotes. You know, it was just literally going by play-by-play and box score, play-by-play log and box score, right. and just writing like so-and-so went three for five with two doubles and three RBIs as this team beat that team on Thursday night, you know, whatever. Wow. So it was pretty easy for me to pick up, even though I had no journalism or sports, sports journalism experience. Um I only got hired because they had no idea what they were doing in the first year of minor league baseball coverage. Zach Campbell's recommendation was enough. Not that he had much, you know, uh, credentials in the company, but it was just like, Hey, I know a guy. Sure. Bring him in. <laughs> you know, it was just that kind of atmosphere then. And so at the time I just looked at it as I looked at most things in my life, just something I would do until the next thing, even though it was baseball and I'd always been a baseball fan. I don't remember ever thinking like, this is it my big break. I just remember thinking like, cool, I'll do this for, until the season ends and then do something else. And so that was 2005, the season ended and uh, they just kind of kept us on with no real editorial plan uh, in the off season. And uh, so I just started coming in during days. Cause I was like, if I have nothing to do, I'd rather work during the day than 8 PM to 2 AM. And I was the only writer who chose to do that. And then I just found myself the lone writer in a room in the first off season in minor league baseball dot com history and that's how i learned about uh you know a little bit more about the other side of the game i remember writing the state college spikes story when they uh announced their team name that was like the first thing of that kind i ever i ever did and then i became the daytime writer and writing all the game recaps for day games uh in 2006 and then on top of that would just do anything else anyone asked one of the things i was asked to do was a promo column and uh promo preview 10 promos coming up this week and uh I just loved that immediately because I could research it. I didn't have to write in a dry, just the facts, sports writing style. I could make jokes and pop culture references. And also it just gave me a great appreciation for all the things that minor league teams were doing, especially back then. It was a little bit of a wider, wilder, weirder world in 2005, six, seven, eight. Um, and I just like, kind of started to fall in love and get really into writing about that side of the industry. And then I started to get feedback from people who worked for the teams who loved the column and wanted to be included in it. Because unbeknownst to me, while I'm just making jokes, uh, there had never been real-time coverage of what teams were doing on that end ever. There had never been a minor league baseball website. There had never been anything like that, um, that where teams could learn what other teams are doing in real time or close to real time throughout the season. So I started really focusing on that. Ben's biz blog started just as a sort of offshoot of the promo preview column, just to say, here's what teams are doing. That's crazy. And uh, became my little niche, my beat. Meanwhile, I'm still part-time. I was in a relationship, got married, got divorced, was doing sketch comedy for years and super into that. That ended. Uh, was wondering if this job would ever become full-time. I'm 30 years old, living with a college friend and four cats and you know, divorced and like not in a good place, really not in a good place. Wondering if this whole MLB thing or this whole New York City thing would collapse, but I don't really know what led to the timing of it. But in 2009, it was like, okay, uh, here's a full-time job for you. And I was like, at the time, I don't even remember being elated so much of like, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> like almost like skeptical. Like, I don't think I believed that something like that would actually happen. Um, and uh, then it was like, okay, I have a full-time job. This is, I guess, my career now. And that's when the traveling started. <laughs> Cause I was like, if I'm going to write about this entire industry, I haven't been to many of these places and uh, started doing that in 2010, these road trips and 
like everything else, I was looking at that as something I just might do for a year or two. And it just kept going and going. And probably around 2016, I was like, well, I guess this is my uh, really, truly my career now. And I'm actually getting close to visiting every stadium. And I hit that milestone in 2018. And um, which is really a career highlight, being able to end that season with a job that which is part time writing game recaps in 2005 to visiting in a professional level, every minor league baseball at the end of 2018. And since then there've been some milestones, but you know, a lot of change in my personal life and my professional life. Um, I still feel like I'm kind of still searching around for what, you know, future milestones could bring, but it's uh, unlike you two who had this sense from a young age, like I want to be a sports writer. I want to be a play-by-play broadcaster. I don't know what I wanted, but it, it really wasn't specifically this. It's just what happened due to a very strange, unique set of circumstances. But that's life, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that we have a diversity of stories then in that way. That we're Damn, all I feel like yours came with a lot less existential crises than uh, than me and Ben, by the way. Like, oh, I moved to New York and I got a job and everything's been great. And Ben and I are like, you know, I stood at the end of a cliff. I wondered if it was time. <laughs> Listen, man, I I didn't say this during my resume portion because I didn't realize we were going through everything. I was walking dogs in 2012. Yeah, like, you, you have told me that story. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, I, my resume, it went a little longer than I thought, but once I started riffing, it just... Uh, no, it's, it, it was good. Um, Tyler, do I go first or do you go first here? Uh, I have no preference, so... I don't either. I'm going first. You went first for no. I went first for you. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. I don't care. You go first. You okay. you look I'll like go first. Right okay. Yeah. Um. All right, Ben. Uh, <clears throat> since you are the most well traveled among us as uh, a minor league scribe and the man who has visited every minor league ballpark, this is such a basic and and dumb question. But I'm going to spin it in a way that hopefully makes it unique and something that you can pin down. I want your favorite memory from a road trip, but it doesn't have to be like, oh yeah, in 2011, I was interviewing this guy at this park and that was cool. It could be like, this was the record store that I wandered into in this town and I had an amazing interaction. Or I was driving down a highway in a rainstorm outside of Mobile and this happened and I felt really cool about life. What's like a memory from, especially if it dates back to some of those earlier trips when you were establishing the cult of Ben's biz, of which I was a proud member in my MILB radio guy days. Uh, I want to hear a good one. That's a great question because there's so many of those little moments. I almost wish I had them written down. Um, the stuff that's not really part of official coverage, but you're just in a certain restaurant or even just the wording on a certain billboard hits you the right way. And you're like, this is just amazing. I love soaking all this in. Uh, I remember my first trip to the Pacific Northwest in 2012, I want to say. Um, I forget the exact route, but I had a day off, I think based on schedules, when I was going to end in Vancouver. And I guess I was in maybe the Portland area before that, Hillsborough. It's all a little vague with the exact itinerary. Um but I, I wanted to go to Crater Lake because I've seen pictures and it's beautiful. It's I don't remember too much about it, except it's just absolutely jaw dropping. It is like a lake that's in a massive crater. Um, so I was like, that'd be great. I'm going to get up the next morning. And before I have to work my way to Vancouver or wherever, I'm going to go to Crater Lake. So I'm just driving. I don't have any you know reservation for a hotel room. I end up in a town called Klamath Falls. I think that's how you say it. Klamath Falls. K-L-A-M-A-T-H. I think that's what it is. And I'm like, well, here's as good a place as any to sleep. 
and um, pull into this little like roadside motel. At the checkout desk, there's a little box of pocket schedules for the Klamath Falls Gems. And I pick it up and they have a game that night. And I say to the person working at the front desk, like, where's the stadium? And he just points across the street and he's just like, just across the street and just like right down that road. And I look behind me and I can see it with the lights on. And I was just like, ah, this is beautiful. Like here I am in a town that I had no idea that I'd be even spending the night in. And I'm at a hotel, motel. Um, that is walking distance to a rustic stadium hosting a summer collegiate team. And that even though it's a quote unquote night off, I can go watch a baseball game and just sit, sit there and take in small town American baseball. That is really cool. And it's one of those things that always reminds me. I have never reached, I worked with so many people in baseball and I'm sure you guys are the same way. I never reached the point working in baseball or working in sports where I thought the last thing I want to do on a day off is go to a baseball game. That's still more days than not. That's the first thing I want to do on a day off is still go to a baseball game. And that I feel like is a very good sign about where you are in life and where you are in work. Um, All right, then now I have to ask you kind of the same question that you asked me, you and I have always connected on uh, sort of our, um, (laughs) our shared sense of self-deprecation slash self-loathing. And I think also we're both stuck constantly by like, just the concept of our own existence and how we fit into the world around us and our own worlds and what it all means and what happens after we die and all those things. I'm not going to ask you for what happens after we die. Although if you know, I would be very interested to hear. No, I do know. And trust me, you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but how have you learned how to balance that stuff too? Because um, for both of us, you know, it seeps out in the podcast sometimes. Uh, and I know uh, it's a thing that we've talked about a lot you know, in person and on the calls before we start recording and all that. How have you learned how to balance all of that with the reality? And I'll say this for you, the reality that you are a beloved, if not the most beloved minor league baseball writer out there, but kind of the struggle of, all right, am I doing this enough? Am I doing it right? Uh, Is my work making a difference? Is it making an impact? Yeah, I struggled with that on a whole lot of levels. Um, often just with the job itself of just like, man, this is kind of cool. But at the end of the day, you're just writing minor league about minor league baseball. How important can it be? You know, so much happening in the world and you're just writing about minor league baseball again. So a lot of the self-loathing comes into play with that regard. And then combined with, um, because my job had no template and I didn't really know what I was doing. I've always struggled with like, am I just someone who goes and documents it or am I kind of part of the show itself, especially in the early days with like, I'll be in this between inning contest. I'll spend an inning on the radio. I'll do the PA announcements. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I always struggle with like how to present myself because I couldn't stand to look or watch or listen to any of it. And that's still kind of a struggle for me is what am I doing when I, when I do this job? Uh, how much is me and how much am I just kind of silent and presenting other things? I think uh, my instinct in a lot of cases is to take a step back and just be someone who presents material showcasing others because it's not my personality. At the same time, to make a career, especially one that's improbable and not planned for, you do have to put yourself out there. Um, so for a lot of years, I, I just couldn't deal with the thought of myself out there in a lot of cases. And I and I, like you said, Tyler, I, imposter syndrome. And I, it, it always felt like, you know, the jig is up. This will be the moment when this whole thing comes crashing down because it makes no sense that I do it anyway. And I don't deserve it. And I'm one of those per- people who looks back at the work I've done in the past and nine times out of 10, I think it sucks. 
and I can't believe that anyone liked it in the first place and, and all those sort of things. But again, similar to what you said, Tyler, I, I think as I got older and it's good, you don't, you don't want friends or, um, you know, girlfriends, fiancés, wives, but you know, the people in your life, you don't want them just to say nice things for the sake of nice things. But when you have someone who cares about you and says things that you can tell they mean, and that it helps you look at yourself a little bit outside yourself, uh, I think is pretty important. And I, I need that quite a bit, not just, Oh, tell me how great I am uh, for my ego. But uh, when friends and people close to me can say like, no, like this is who you are. This is why you have value. This is why people like it. Um, I think that can be really helpful and something I can carry with me um, for at least another few minutes before it comes crashing down again. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I am better at looking at myself as someone who has uh, earned a right to be where I am and who does work that is worthy of uh, respect and recognition. And then in that sort of, I don't know if bipolar is the word for it, that's probably too dramatic, but then it can just vacillate to the other direction. Yeah, just like the whiplash. Yeah, these brief moments of like, I am the greatest of all time. Like, why does no one see this? Why am I still in this situation when I could be doing this? Like me, 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 I'm the best, you know? And then you just have to find this middle ground of daily confidence, but a little bit more grounded in uh, in reality and uh, concrete steps you can take to get wherever you want to go next. I like that answer. I think it's a, it's a very good answer. And uh, again, speaking as a, a proud longtime member of the Ben's Biz cult, um, your work has long had a pretty amazing value to a ton of people. I know I've mentioned this a lot uh, throughout my time on the show, but my favorite thing to do uh, when I didn't want to do work or when I didn't have work to do when I was working for a minor league team was just read the Ben's Biz blog, which I would do constantly. It was always full of like fun links that I got to click on and like cool pictures and this album that you bought and this thing that you ate and this uh, weird uniform thing that you came across and this logo and those it's still to this day is one of my uh, one of the things that I loved about being in a minor league front office setting every day. Um, OK, here's my last question. And it's I think it's the the biggest one that I've asked either of you, but it's because you're at a stage in life that Sam and I have not yet reached. How is being a father changed your perspective on your work? Um, the travel, obviously, that you do, you know, Harry's at home, uh, you're on the road away from him, I would imagine it feels a whole lot different than what it was this time, five, 10 years ago. Even I, you know, I'm not a father, but I'm married now for almost two months. And I have found that my first couple basketball road trips of the year, I thought like, eh, I kind of want to be home with Beth. Um, what's that been like for you? Yeah, a big change, obviously. And, you know, for me, one of the benefits, even though it had some downfalls at the time, you know, I was, single when this job became full-time and single through the vast majority of the next decade. And um, it really did help me professionally because I could just go within budget and within reason, but I could go wherever I wanted, um, both professionally as well as just living in New York City as a single person. And I just had so much freedom to do uh, basically whatever I wanted. And that led to some you know bad behaviors and bad habits, but also um, that freedom allowed me to just spend as much time as I needed to making this whole Ben's biz thing a thing. Um, but also I found it hard to turn it off uh, because there maybe wasn't quite enough going on in the rest of my life to just escape from it. So becoming a dad, um, you know, Harry was born in February, 2021, which was just a strange time in general with the MLB taking over the minor leagues and everyone's still coming out of COVID and everything. Um, so there's just an adjustment for everyone at that period of time. But then for me, 
uh, one, yes, I quickly realized like with travel, um, I couldn't go to as many places as I used to go. Um, Jill, my fiance, we will get married uh, sometime in 2024. Um, you know, she needed help, you know, raising the kid. And she made it clear from the beginning, look, I know who you are and what you do. And I know you're still going to need to do these road trips. But now I look at them as more, you know, maybe four ballparks and five nights as opposed to eight ballparks and nine or 10 nights and that kind of thing. So it's uh, reduced my travel schedule. And I think the greatest boon psychologically is that like when I leave work, I don't just like hang around till like 7.30 or 8, which was sometimes good because I could get everything I wanted done. But I leave work at a certain time because I need to go back and see Harry before he goes to sleep or maybe, you know, do bedtime myself. And then when I go back and I'm in that world, I'm not really thinking of my job much anymore. And I like having a much more uh, clear delineation between my professional and personal life, which has been so much easier to maintain uh, with having something as all encompassing as a child. And uh, it gets me out of my own head, which is helpful because it's good to think about yourself and what you need to do. But you hit a wall with that after a while where you're like, I've thought about all this too much. And what am I doing now except spinning my wheels, getting unreasonably angry or depressed or some combination thereof? Uh, it's nice to just have a hard out. I'm leaving the office now and I'm not going to think about work much until tomorrow. That That's is not super cool. the case, but it's much more likely now than it used to be. That is really cool. Um, all right, Ben. The floor is Sam's now. All right. Um, my first one is going to kind of be like a technical writing question. Um, because are you an Oxford comma fan? Are you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was, we, I was weaned off that. I was. Yeah. Same. Two. I know. I started getting shamed for it until I just dropped it. Yeah. In my interview for this job, I was asked a question about like, what are some of your grammatical pet peeves? And I said like, oh, I love the Oxford comma. And they were like, we don't use that here. And I was like, what, what kind of monsters are you? But anyway. Neither here nor there. <laughs> I'm with you. All right. Well, kind of not along those specific lines, but your style of writing has such a voice. Is that something that has just come naturally to you? Or is that something you're where you're kind of bending the form to your will? Where you're like, listen, this is going to sound like something I want to read. Or are you just writing and, and not even considering voice? Uh, that's an interesting question. I want to have it. I wanted to have a strong voice and a voice that sounds like mine because I'm me. But I think a lot of that can be attributed to what I was saying earlier about the evolution of my career. The fact that I didn't, I had literally no writing credits whatsoever, <laughs> credentials, no high school or college newspaper. I had no formal training in like journalism or producing anything. So I was I don't know, self-taught, but like in a lot of ways, I, I always loved to write going back to being a kid and I was better at writing than most things. Um, but after high school, there was no really formal education in actual writing. And uh, I've always been real humor oriented and really had a strong you know detour into comedy writing. And um, so I always like to be funny, which minor league baseball has a greater likelihood that what you're writing about could be funny than most things. And I don't want it to be like, Ha ha, it's another laugh, laugh a minute, riotous article with old Ben's biz. Like it doesn't need to be like, ha ha, funny, funny. But like, I do like to have a distinct voice and maybe word choices or very dry asides that kind of show like this guy's in on the joke. And then often I feel like I write little things that are like that. And, you know, then the 
tweet goes up or it's on social media somewhere and everyone just seems like they're commenting on the picture. And I'm just like, I spent a lot of time writing this, but you always, that's another thing I'm sure you guys know too. You always have to just assume that someone out there really does care. And, but I'm always writing for that person, whoever they may be. I, even articles I write now that are just 600 words, I spend too much time on them because I, I want them to be pretty precise. And I get very frustrated by sometimes my lack of descriptive detail or ability to really stretch out and, you know, that can go into the self-loathing thing, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't really learn. And uh, it's just an extension of myself and something I've tried to cultivate and keep getting better at. And I do feel like there's a lot of room to improve <laughs> as a writer, uh, but that's a good thing. It's not like a physical activity where you're like, well, I used to run a mile this much and that'll never happen again. Like as a writer, you can just keep within reason saying I can keep improving. Yeah. I and also, unlike Sam, I, I don't run at all. So I've never had that issue. Yeah, I, I don't I don't write either. I don't run either, but you know, <laughs> when I did. Well that uh I think that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier of like I want somebody to see my byline and and trust that they can or they know that the information is good. I don't I think they don't even need to see your byline because you have that style. Like it is so singular and there is nobody else like you. I don't mean to say we should take your byline off stuff, but like <laughs> yeah, people just... know when they're reading a Ben's Biz piece and and that they will be laughing along the way and they will be come away with something they didn't know either. Um, so I think that's something really special that you do. Uh, this one is kind of coming at your job from the other point of view. Um, if you were named the president or the GM of a minor league team tomorrow, what is the Ben's biz stamp you would try to put on that team? Like what's the first thing you would look into? What's the first thing you would change? That's an awesome question. I'm excited what for this answer. Yeah, what what would you what would be the first thing that comes to mind of like, hey, this is what I want this team to be about? Yeah, I mean, without without going real deep in the weeds of like, well, let's talk about this team. You know, what is the ballpark situation? What staffing is there? You know, there's so many things to consider. I thought about giving you a specific team, yeah. but then that's just like beating down on that one team. Yeah, like, so there's so many variables. So wherever one would be a GM or running a franchise. Um, obviously the to-do list would vary place by place, but if we're talking a larger thing that would carry over no matter what, uh, putting aside as many variables as possible, um, obviously one of my biggest things would be, you know, to, well, one, just as a staff, I would want to create an atmosphere like that. This is within reason. If we're talking affiliated team, it is more difficult to do, you know, some of the crazier promotions that used to be done in the past. You know, there's more oversight, you know, by Major League Baseball with just how the, the games are run. Um, so some things can't be done anymore, but I have been frustrated in recent years, especially I think a lot of staff turnover in minor league baseball, you know, post pandemic, um, that that spirit that was so prevalent in minor league baseball when I start, first started writing about it, of just like, we're going to do something stupid just because we it makes us laugh. And I know this is a business. You're in it to generate revenue, make money. Um, so just like being stupid for stupid sake, isn't necessarily like, ah, now we'll just sit back and watch the money roll in. But to me, it was always so important because it creates a staff cohesion an atmosphere of creativity and signals to everyone who works for the team, as well as everyone who follows it, that they're not going to just sit around and do the same thing every day. And I think that sometimes even the dumbest ideas can create seeds that leads to ideas that can really actually change a franchise around, uh, or create money. I mean, an obvious example you know, it's just the whole Bill Vec and then Mike Vec philosophy. Um, but that's the kind of stamp that I'd want to put in, put in on it that says like, we're going to be really stupid. 
we're going to just do things for the sake of doing it. It's national cockroach day. Like, okay, we'll give away like pet cockroaches for like no reason at all. Um, and so on and so forth. I mean, I don't know why that came to my mind out of everything, but just a throat against the wall, see what sticks uh, approach that harkens back more to what the industry was 20, 30 years ago, um, which I think is still more possible than most teams do uh, at the moment. But I would want to be, in the conversation immediately in terms of like a team that does the funniest, most creative uh, promotions and have a whole organizational style and philosophy that flows from that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the perfect way to set the tone <laughs> yeah. of the Bez, Ben's Biz presidency. Um, all right. Well, this one kind of harkens back to the question you asked me earlier. Um, we're talking a lot about road trips. You know, you have a lot of time between stops in some of these places Uh and one thing you always do is you stop in at uh, a record store too. So I'm going to give this as two different types of questions. You can answer either one. What is the perfect album for a minor league road trip? Or what are three songs that would lead off a playlist for the perfect minor league road trip? Man, I mean, that is like those questions. It can, it can go on uh, forever for me. Broadly speaking, I think a lot of the perfect stuff for a minor league road trip is just like loud rock and roll or hip hop with, uh, you know, more like stoner rock type stuff like you know, Fu Manchu and Nebula going back to Sabbath just for some more basic examples. Uh, I like, you know, heavy guitars loud uh, in and heavy drum beats loud in the car. A specific album There's a great record store in Pittsburgh, Jerry's Records. It's amazing in Squirrel Hill. And, you know, the, the stuff there is cheap. And sometimes I would buy stuff just because it looked intriguing. And I bought a record one day by a guy named Harlan Howard, who's much better known as a country songwriter, not really as a singer. But this is one of his solo albums. And it was called To the Silent Majority with Love. And, um, you know, it was early 70s album, you know, To the Silent Majority, to the more like, you know, conservative working people who feel like their voices are not really heard in this time of more uh, protests and revolution. And something about that set of songs and its contradictions and the things I agreed with and the things I didn't agree with, but still in really simple two minute like country format, I used to have at that time a record player that you could burn records on a CD. I burned Harlan Howard's To the Silent Majority with Love onto a CD and listened to it on every road trip for years and years and years and would sing along like to every song in the car. And uh, it sounds corny because it is. But I'd be like, you know, like, Uncle Sam, I'm a patriot. Yes, I am. And even though you make me mad as Cain, if you need me, uncle, just call my name. Uh, you know, I would just rock with this Harlan Howard record that I look up and almost no one else really has or knows. I mean, Willie Nelson did an album of Harlan Howard songs because he wrote a lot of like bangers like in the Nashville Hit Factory. But like his vocal stuff or his solo stuff is not well known. But there's something about the... Yeah, spirit style and uh, inherent contradictions telling an American story through this record that something, I'm the only guy probably blasting Harlan Howard's uh, To the Silent Majority with Love. Inherent contradictions telling a story of America. I mean, that's like yeah. a lot of what minor league baseball is. That's a yeah. lot of what career and coverage of minor league baseball has been. That I'm, I'm really glad you found that. Cause that's, that's perfect. Yeah. And in a bigger picture, that's what I love finding these little things that become yours. Not that you don't want to share them. It's like, it's mine, but these little nuggets that you find all over America that just you connect with and that, that make you yes. Proud to be an American. That is pretty cool. I like that a lot. 
Um, man, did we exhaust all of our all of our That's 18 it. questions? Yeah, we only talked for like an hour Incredible. and a half. <laughs> um, don't worry. It's not just us because there is one other memory uh, that we need to learn, and that is the memory of your favorite ghost of the Miners hosts and ours, Josh Jackson, who swings by the show to tell us his story right now. This is Josh Jackson, your host of Ghosts of the Miners. Seeing as none of the show before the show hosts has displayed any curiosity whatsoever about my life in or out of baseball, nor extended me the slightest courtesy as regards to anything, I thought I'd volunteer some key personal facts for all of you out there in Radio Land. My boyhood idol was Kent Nichols. My first job in the game was as a junior tobacconist for Colonel Rupert, who hired me on the spot after he saw me get into fisticuffs with Enrico Caruso. My favorite baseball memory is the time I was working on translating a poem by Rambeau in France during the Great War, and one thing led to another when I found myself hitting for the cycle and throwing a no-hitter against a squad led by Grover Cleveland Alexander. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. Ben and Tyler and Sam are cooking Thanksgiving dinner, and I've got to put the arsenic in their apple pie. Uh, I love that, but it will not, it will not stand. Uh, and at some point soon, we're going to drag Josh kicking and screaming on for his very own, uh, biopic bio cast episode of the show before the show, uh, whether he likes it or not, uh, because he is, he's truly one of the great geniuses of our time and his, uh, it, it, Josh Jackson is just like a person I am so delighted that I even get to know in life that I, I can't really put my words accurately uh, behind that sentiment. So at some point we're going to drag him on. You're all going to hear from the real Josh Jackson. I think that sounds like a good idea, right? It it does. But I will also say him writing that is a peek at the real Josh. It is. It totally is. It's all within his mind. And yeah. you're learning as much through that writing and through that recording as you would. We're still going to do it. Don't. I'm not poo-pooing anything. But uh, it's just what you guys hear on a weekly basis from that creative genius is uh, is the real Josh. He's, uh, he's amazing. I said a, a second ago, uh, he's like our Salinger. He's like up there in the wilds and the, in the extreme, he's not in New Hampshire, but he's in Maine. He's, you know, he's somewhat reclusive. He's, uh, he's a genius. He's our, he's our reclusive genius. I like it. It's a good character to have on this podcast. Is that it? Are we, are we done? I think we're done. I think we're done accompanying people. If somebody had like an hour and 26 minute road trip, this was the perfect companion for you. I hope it was. I mean, I think this is a good week to do this. I think yeah. during the season, I'd be like, ah, oh, it's way too indulgent, but it's a holiday week. Uh, we do obviously go without saying, we appreciate everyone who's been listening to this podcast, uh, new listeners and long timers. And um, maybe it was interesting to hear about the careers and life stories of uh, us uh, three knuckleheads, us Trace Chiflados. There's a Mexican <laughs> restaurant near me, and I learned that Chiflados kind of means like stooge. So, like, Trace Chiflados. <laughs> That's the Patreon. <laughs> I was going to say, that could be the episode of this podcast also. I do have one final question for both of you. And that is, uh, what is something that you are most thankful for, for this life that you have in baseball? It's a week of giving thanks. Tell me something that you're thankful for. For me, it's it's that moment where I go to a major league game or a minor league game, but major league game specifically for this scenario 
and you just know something about more than half the roster. I mean, there's always going to be pop-up guys. There's like relievers who who you don't cover a ton in the minors and make something of themselves at like 27, 28. But like I was talking about this earlier, it's it's one of the coolest things I, I do in this job is just like getting to know these guys as as people in some cases, but getting to know them as players, seeing different things in their game, um, being able to tell those stories early, I guess is the big thing for me is, is getting there. That's the name of this show is the show before the show. We are there before these guys make it big. Um, and I'm grateful to be able to tell those stories and share them with so many of you. And hopefully you're at games, you know, from rookie ball all the way to the majors saying like, Hey, I heard about this guy before, uh, from the pipeline crew, from the mill crew, from the show before the show. And you can turn to your buddy and be like, this is what I heard. Um, and that just makes the game itself so much more communal and fun. I think it's for me such a big portion of my material, especially uh, on the road trips where I get enough material to last for much, much longer than the road trip itself, um, is that I'm often writing about people, you know, some unique ballpark character working for the team, fan, historian, whoever they may be. I often write about people who had never before been written about uh, and certainly not like in a national level. And I love that I get to be the one to tell this person's story. And I know doing the job we do, it's not to like make your subjects feel good, but I love that it's very special to a lot of the people I write about, as opposed to, you know, a lot of athletes, especially, you know, they're in a press conference, just saying the same things over and over again. I love that. I have the antithesis of that. Someone who's really not asked questions about themselves very often and who gets to tell me about themselves. And then I have the privilege really of just uh, being able to write a little story about them that, uh, that hopefully they'll, you know, love forever and that the people who know them will really appreciate. And then obviously hopefully readers will appreciate even if they don't know that person, just because it's an interesting American minor league story. That's Can I really one, one more real quick? Yeah, of course. It's a week for giving fun. thanks, buddy. Yeah. Is, uh, and Ben, I'm sure this happens to you all the time, even more so than it happens with me, but like I traveled more this year than I ever have. It feels like there's a member. I mean, there's a member of the minor league family everywhere at every ballpark. But like you just show up and it's just like, oh, I know you from this thing. I know you from this thing. I, here's a fan who's like, listen to the show. Here's somebody who I've met before on the road. It happened so much this year and, and it happened in unexpected ways. It's one thing when you've been communicating with a team for a while and you show up and you're like, all right, we're we're good now. We, we've known each other for a bit. It's another one. It's just like, oh, hey, I didn't expect to see you here. What are you doing? Here? Like that happens so much in this minor league community. And I'm, and I'm so thankful for it. And it's actually happening at this moment. Fort Wayne broadcaster John Nolan is in the building and was texting me like, hey, I'm around. Are you around? I would love to see you. It's just like, it's crazy that this happens, that somebody from Fort Wayne, Indiana can just text you and be like, hey, I'm in New York City. Let's hang out. And like, yeah, of course, because we're friends in a way that we wouldn't have been otherwise. This is one of the truly national, international sports that is going on. Uh, and it's one of the most familiar sports, familial sports. And I appreciate that every day. Absolutely. That is really cool. Um, I'm going to give you my own answer also. Um, and it, you know, sort of piggyback Sam off of what you're saying. Um, I'm just very thankful for the people that I've come to know in my life through not just this job, not just the, the minor league side or the broadcasting side, but just baseball, man. I, you know, like I said, I had a wedding a couple of months ago and I was sitting there at the reception, looking out and thinking, 
know how many people in this room I know because of baseball? Because my high school friends, we all played together. My college friends, we played together or we bonded over the teams that we liked or whatever. My friends from minor league jobs that I had, uh, you know, Mike Passanisi, who was there, who I was a broadcaster with in Altoona in 2012. Anthony Masterson, who was uh, there, who I was a broadcaster with in Myrtle Beach in 2010. Um, You know, you guys being friends that I'll have forever. Josh Jackson being a friend that I'll have forever. And even just, you know, Sam kind of touching on, on what you said, the amount of people that we come across uh, who are longtime listeners or fans of the show. Uh, you know, Jeremy Turgeson is a guy who uh, I know you guys are familiar with who I met uh, at the World Baseball Classic final in Miami because he's listened to the podcast for a long time, uh, watched the World Baseball Classic games that I did. Um, I got a, a message on Instagram the other day from uh, Matt Polanski who said, uh, hey, any chance you guys can talk about the draft league a little bit? I know it's not an affiliated minor league system in that teams have clubs and there's parent relationships, blah, blah, blah. But it is part of the the family of minor leagues. Um, you know, people who care enough to reach out and take part in our work. Um, that is a, a tremendously lucky thing for us to have. Uh, and we're extraordinarily grateful to everybody. You know, when we started this podcast in 2015, we didn't really know what it was going to become. And the fact that we are going into what will be nine years of doing it is pretty incredible. And uh, so I'm I'm really grateful for that. The, the more you get to different stages in life, you realize that uh, the relationships that you have with people are so often the most important thing in the world. And I've been able to make a lot of really incredible relationships with a lot of really incredible people because of this game. And I'll forever be uh, super grateful for that. Um so yeah, we're thankful. I think we're three pretty thankful dudes. We're we're pretty lucky guys. I think. Yeah, we're the gratitude guys. The gra- yeah, they're the, the gratitude guys this week. That's our that's our episode name or a band name if we wanted to start a band. But I'm trusting Ben with all the actual musical elements of it. Yeah, it's gonna be heavy. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're going to say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Um, if you like this episode, if you want us to do more fun stuff like this over the off season, uh, feel free to get in touch. Podcast at MILB.com. Uh, the cool thing about the the state of where this episode is right now is we've got, you know, a lot of a lot of confidence, a lot of support, uh, and we have the ability to sort of, you know, take different turns and tweaks and, and try new things and challenge ourselves on this podcast. And that's a lot of fun for us. So uh, if you've got some concepts and some things you would like to hear from us, send them our way, podcast at MILB.com and um, get in touch. And we uh, thoroughly enjoy hearing from all of you. And we are so appreciative for your support. Uh, for Benjamin Hill, Sam Dykstra, Josh Jackson, and all the rest, my name is Tyler Mon. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll catch you next week.